reading of God's Word. Uh, remain standing for this reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> Again, it's page number 573 in your pew Bibles. And I've called this morning's sermon, What the Names of God Teach Us About God. What the Names of God Teach Us About God. <clears throat> so we're reading about uh, the prophecy through the lips and the pen of Isaiah, who was a, a prophet, a preacher in the Old Testament. He lived about... 800 years before the time of Christ, about 800 B.C. Um, prophets, of course, typically warned the people of God. They warned them to repent or be judged. That was usually their message, repent or receive the judgment of God. If they didn't repent, that judgment would come by death. Sometimes it would be famine, plague, uh, oftentimes it would be another nation coming in and taking over, ta uh, killing people or taking them away to, to their land or something like that. So this particular period of time in which Isaiah was uh, preaching uh, was a time of a lot of fear by the people of God because of the Assyrians. And the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, the city where Jonah went to preach. And so there was a lot of fear for the people of God there because the Assyrians were a a violent people, a destructive people, a dominant people, and they were, they were just coming in and, um, and, and taking people, uh, various, various peoples and various nations away in ca into captivity, doing that by droves. And so the Hebrews were scared. But Isaiah prophesied that God would deliver His people, which gives them hope. And so then for about the next 800 years, the people of God were expecting this deliverer, looking for this deliverer. And throughout the time, they believed that maybe it was, you know, it was different guys at different times. Even John the Baptist, you might recall, he's the one that you might know most um, well, uh, the one who was thought to be the Christ. And he says, no, no, that's not me. That's the one uh, who's baptizing across the Jordan and, and things of that nature, the one who comes after me. Of course, it was ultimately fulfilled, this prophecy in Jesus of Nazareth. But even with the fulfillment of Jesus of Nazareth fulfilling this prophecy, it was an inauguration, but not a consummation. So it begins, but it's not full yet. It's not total and complete yet. That's still yet to come in a second coming. So this prophecy that we're looking at, it's, it's a prophecy of a future deliverer but it's presented in the past tense as if it's already happened, which is not uncommon uh, for the way prophets to preach and, and prophesy. So a little background there from Isaiah chapter 9 as I read verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her, of course that's the people of God, who was in anguish. In the former time he, God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which would be areas of Israel. But in the latter time He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult 
And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Lord, would you, uh, during this time, for us in need, as we read, reread this ancient text and are familiar with the words of this prophecy, Lord, please open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from this your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm often fascinated by the headlines, typically on AL.com, where you see a list of the most popular baby names. I don't know why that is. Lisa and I are not still having children, but I guess it's grandchildren that are coming along, and you're always trying to guess what the grandchildren are going to be named. And so I go to those websites or those articles, and I'll read them, and I guess it's just kind of fun to, to check and of course, right now, the most popular boy names are names like William and Liam and Noah and Oliver, things like that. And, of course, the list is long. For, for girls nowadays, it's, it's Olivia and Emma and Amelia and, of course, another, a bunch of others. I, I keep thinking that surely at some point Bertha will come back or Gertrude or Larry or Leon, you know, some of these old names, if you really want to be different, go with something like that and, and you'll, you'll have a, a unique name there. But, of course, I've yet to see in these lists, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And that's good. I wouldn't want to see those names listed for children. But that's what Isaiah 9 says. The one who is coming to deliver the people of God shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So what do these names teach us about God? And before I get into the specific names, let me just say one thing. Names equal character. And so these aren't just formal names of God, but they are the character of God. And it, and it was true then that names equal character, just as it's true now. When someone says your name, you don't just think of what the person looks like, but you think of who they are, their character. Are they a person of character or are they a scoundrel? Lisa and I went to high school together, and we, weren't, we were not high school sweethearts. It was a big high school in Metro Atlanta. We didn't know each other even, and she was a year in front of me. We ran in different circles. So, but there was one guy who was infamous there, and I won't say his name because <clears throat> this is live-streamed. Uh, so we knew a lot of the same people, of course. And, and one time, I remember years ago, I said his name, and she said, Oh, gross. <laughs> Well, I guess I shouldn't have said totally what Lisa said whenever she heard this guy's name. But it was true. This guy was like the main drug dealer in school. He was, he was uh, the, the, the guy that 
that nobody liked except for the, the druggies. And um, it, 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 he just, the, the girls couldn't stand him because he was, anyway, it's just, when you thought of his name, that's what you, what you thought. Oh, gross. And, um, and that's the way it is with names. It's not just a form, formality, but it, it's character. And that's what we see with God. These names of God reveal his character. And not just his formal name. So let's work through these. Wonderful. That's the first name that we see here. Wonderful. Which some of you are, have to immediately be thinking, or, wait a second, isn't, one, isn't it wonderful counselor? Well, there's a little bit of debate about that. And I'm going with the old King James Version understanding. And that is that wonderful is a standalone. It's not an adjective describing the sort of counselor that he is, but it is... There should be a comma after wonderful in a sense. Uh, the, the Hebrew, it, it is a noun and, and not an adjective, although many of the more modern translations do just, they get rid of the comma and so it's wonderful counselor. It's treated as an adjective. And there's good reason for that. I'm not denying that. But I'm going with the old King James Version, which is why we have then five names of God. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, rather than four, what you might see in some other places. Anyway, what does the word wonderful mean? What it means in this passage is essentially incomprehensible. Beyond our ability to understand. It means certainly great, fantastic, good, but it's, it's actually much weightier than that. Much more significant than that. What this passage teaches us, what this prophecy teaches us, is that the people of God... Um, will be full of wonder and amazement. In other words, this one who is coming to deliver, one of God, this, this God who is coming to deliver, it's going gonna, it's gonna to boggle the mind. It's going to leave us speechless. The same word for wonderful is used in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 13, when Samson's dad, Manoah, uh, asked the Lord when, when, when there was a theophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of God, uh, what his name was, the angel of the Lord responded, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In other words, why do you ask my name, since it is beyond your understanding? It is so great. It's so mysterious. It's so fantastic. The first thing we learn about this name of God is that it's beyond our understanding. It's wonderful. Beyond our comprehension. And of course, that's what we see in this initial fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus is the promised one who comes to deliver and bring peace. But what, the way He does it, He does it in a way that's unexpected. In a way that's unique and different from what most people would think. We usually think about, especially a nation a group of people and the one who's going to come to deliver them. We usually think in a physical way or a worldly way. And especially we think that that deliverance comes through uh, and that peace comes through politics, through some political leader. But remember, Jesus didn't overthrow the Roman government. He allowed himself to die on a cross. And in that sense, the, the fulfillment of this prophecy, Jesus is wonderful beyond our understanding to grasp how He is going to deliver His people. Paradoxical even. Boggling the mind. This is your God. This is our God. 
But it certainly means wonderful in the common way that we use this term, in the sense of just we can't fathom how great God is. We can't estimate how many blessings we have from knowing God. They're beyond. They're too numerous to count. As we experience God, truly know Him and experience Him, we really are left speechless. We're amazed. Wonderful. It reminds us that we're not God. It reminds us that we're limited. It reminds us that we can't orchestrate everything that goes on in life, all that needs to be done. You know, your three-year-old may think you're great. Or your three-year-old grandchild may think you're great. Don't let it go to your head. (laughs) Because you're not, I'm not, but God is wonderful. Second, counselor. Counselor. Which, what we learn from this is the fact that God doesn't just leave us sort of standing there with our mouths wide open. He comes to us and teaches us. He instructs us. He doesn't just leave us even with our mouths wide open at the sin in the world. But He intervenes. He involves Himself. He is the Counselor. You think about this versus um, deism. What we think of as, as, as deism, which is the idea that God created the world and then he just got it spinning and then took his hands off and, and, you know, you're up from that point forward. You're on your own. Best of luck in a sense. No, he is our counselor. He is intimately acquainted with all our ways, it says in the 139th Psalm. He's involved in guiding our lives, which is this which is epitomized in the idea of the incarnation. The truth of the Incarnation, the doctrine of the Incarnation. God becomes man. So He's not just a counselor, but He's our counselor who counsels us from a sympathetic position because He's been where we are. You know, counselors who aren't very sympathetic are usually not very good counselors. Maybe you've seen the, what I think is rather hilarious Geico commercial where the um, it, the question is asked do former drill instructors uh, make good counselors and so there's this former drill instructor from a movie back in the 80s or 90s and I can't remember his name but he's the actor and he's sitting there with a you know notepad and somebody's laying on the like a counseling sort of couch and talking about how the color yellow makes him sad and so then he says the former drill instructor, he's, well, what, you know what makes me sad? And then he starts yelling at him. You do. And, uh, he, and he throws tissue at him and calls him a crybaby. And he's, he's a former drill instructor. He's not very sympathetic. He's not a good counselor. But Jesus counsels us as one who's been there. Like a lot of counselors at, you know, drug and alcohol rehab places, they are typically former addicts. Because they've been there. There's sympathy. They know what it's like. And Jesus counsels us as one who's been there. But I do want you to understand another thing about this. And that is that He doesn't just counsel us uh, like a therapist. But no, He's he's the expert. 
He's the authority. This Hebrew word that we translate counselor carries with it those ideas of, of authority and expertise. Jesus is the authority on the subject. He has the, the knowledge and the experience to instruct us well. You know, we refer to people who speak on issues as authorities. We, oh, so-and-so, yeah, he's an authority on the migration habits of Canadian geese or whatever. You know, he, he's the authority on it. That's Jesus. He's our counselor, which means he gets involved instructing us, but he does it from a position of great sympathy, and he does it as the authority. Wonderful counselor, and then third, mighty God. Which clearly reminds us that God is powerful. He's powerful enough to create everything we see. And He's able to not just create it, but to sustain it or maintain it. You and I are here right now and still breathing at this moment because God ordains it. There are no maverick molecules. He owns every atom. And He's mighty enough to arrange all the details of our lives. Every detail of our lives. I am partly here today because uh, in 1997 I ran into a PCA pastor in the Atlanta airport. You know, one of the busiest airports of the world. And I rarely traveled in 1997. This pastor rarely traveled in 1997. But I knew him. His name is John Oliver. He was pastor at First Presbyterian in Augusta, Georgia. And he had moved to Montgomery. And I don't, remember, I don't remember why he was traveling. I don't remember why I was traveling. But neither, neither one of us traveled much. And where we are in this huge airport. And we bump into each other. And we start talking. And I was working in business at the time. I was working as a manufacturer's rep for Delta Fawcett Company. And we start talking. And here I am because he offered me a position on his church staff in Montgomery. Now, how, who arranges that kind of thing? Who is able to pull that sort of thing off? Only our mighty God. Mighty enough to overcome all natural impossibilities is our, is our mighty God which is why we can have no problem with the idea of Jesus being born of a virgin, growing up with two natures, fully God and fully man. Also, as we were just saying, Emmanuel, God with us. All of these things teach us about the power and the might of God. If He so wills, He can remove that cancer. If He so wills, He can reverse the direction of your business. If He so wills, he can change that broken relationship. That is our mighty God. I think you see it wonderfully in the New Testament when Jesus calms the wind on the sea. You, you've, you remember this story. The, the, Jesus and His disciples are in a boat. Jesus is asleep. And, the, and there's a storm going on. And the wind and the waves are, are just chaotic. And the disciples, in one of the more hilarious accusations that we read about in the Bible, ask Jesus if He cares. And so they, they, they wake Him up and ask Him if He cares that they're going to die. And He stands up and He calms the wind and the waves. How can that be? Because He owns the wind and the waves. 
I was thinking about that with um, with car alarms. You know, if, if if somebody's car was right out here and it started going off, we'd all hear it. You know, um, I won't try to imitate the sounds, but <laughs> we would we'd all we'd all know what's going on. And maybe uh, maybe somebody would run out there and and. You know, you might start fiddling, find, trying to find your your key fob, and you're pressing your button, make sure it's not yours, whatever. And you know, somebody says, "Oh, it's a you know, it's a a red Toyota Highlander or whatever." And and somebody in here would say, "Oh, that's mine. I own it." Click stops. That's our mighty God. Click, and whatever it is that might seem to you to be. And be to you and me outside of our control and our power is no problem for the God who owns it all, our mighty God. We're not God. Jesus is what no man is. All that we aren't, Jesus is. And, and this kind of stuff, it teaches us that Every time in you, you or I run into a roadblock of some sort, we encounter some sort of obstacle, something that we can't fix, there's one who can fix it. Every time we get discouraged, there is a, a mighty God who can lift us up. Every time we lack the needed resources for whatever it is that we're facing, there is a mighty God beside us to provide for our needs. Fourth, Everlasting Father. Now, Jesus, of course, is the Son, and He's not to be confused with God the Father, but Jesus is also a Father in many ways, or, or another way to say it, He is Father-like. And certainly for some of you, that may bring, some dif- different, bring forth some different feelings. Maybe there's plenty of happy feelings when you think about Father. Sometimes there are sad or angry or bitter feelings. But Jesus is the everlasting, loving, wise Father who existed before time began. He is the everlasting Father, eternal Father, unchangeable Father. Which means, y'all, He's outside of time. He's not bound by time. He's not restricted in any way by time. Time doesn't box Him in. Time never creates for our Lord a crisis. Which what that means for you and me is that we then can't judge God by our calendar. God may appear to be slow, but He never forgets His promises. He may seem to be working very slowly, or even not at all, or even to be forgetting His promises. But when His promises come true, and they will come true, they, they always overflow the banks of what you and I could imagine. God's grace almost never operates in our time frame. It almost never works on a schedule that we would consider reasonable. He's the everlasting Father. And then finally, the Prince of Peace. And I preached on the concept of peace last week. Oh, which speaking of, I forgot to have us light the Advent. Just pretend those are all lit there this morning. But I preached on the peace. What made me think of it is that one of the candles that we rep, that we light each Advent season that it stands for represents the peace. And so I preached on peace last week. And, and I said last week that we live in a very anxious age. And I'm reminded many times non-Christians re- reject Christianity 
because Jesus hasn't brought peace on earth. And certainly we see uh, wars between nations. We see wars between husbands and wives. We've seen wars between siblings. We see wars between neighbors. Even wars between drivers on the road. And just on I-65, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I heard about some somebody that was there was an attempted, you know, murder. There was a, a shooting from one car to another about seven o'clock in the morning on I-65 in Vestavia Hills. Jesus is Prince of Peace. How can that be when there's so much anxiety, so much conflict, so much war? Matter of fact, Bart Ehrman, who is a is a well-known atheist, which and he teaches New Testament at the, uh, and I think at one time was the chair chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, he was asked the question one time, what what might make him a Christian? And his answer was, if Jesus had fulfilled his promises to bring peace on earth. So what do you say to that? Well, one thing I would say to that is, Jesus didn't say he would bring peace on earth. As a matter of fact, what that's a misunderstanding. What Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, do you, he, he said, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. And then he then talks about how in families there, there will be division. The, the families will be divided because of him. Some will believe and some won't. Remember this, the first advent, uh, there are two advents. The first one brings peace, but in a, in a very partial way to our souls Certainly in many of our relationships, but never perfectly until the second advent, until the second coming of Christ. So we live now in a time where simply our appetites have been whetted. We, it, it's, this is just in, in a sense an appetizer. But the full meal, the full five course meal of peace is still to come. Prince of Peace. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Counselor, Wonderful. This is a fantastic passage. And teaches us, you know, I, I could almost even say that the, the main thing that we learn from this passage, or the, the thing that has really been, I guess, personally helpful, convicting, comforting for me this week as I've thought about this passage, is that what this passage teaches is, is, is that things will change. Things will not always stay the same. Things, things will be different. Life will not always be so hard. There, there will not always be injustice. We will not always struggle with sin. One day, one is coming who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. This passage teaches that. teaches that, us that, that, that one day things will be different. And so you and I, we don't have to live today wringing our hands in frustration. We don't have to live our lives these days because with in anxiety because change is coming. Again, the change has come initially. It will come fully. This is what we think about and learn with Christmas. Christmas means God has come and God will come, which is why there's hope. Hope for the world despite all its problems and hope for you and me despite all of our failings despite all of our problems 
I read something this week that I had not thought about. Um, I didn't go back and check it. So, you know, there, there might be an exception or two. But I believe it to be true that each time Jesus performed a miracle, He was fixing a problem. He was solving a problem. The feeding of the 5,000 solved a hunger problem. The, the healing of the, the man born blind, that fixed a sight problem. Raising Lazarus from the dead, rising from the dead Himself, solves a death problem. That's what the coming of Jesus means. God fixes problems. He solves issues. He delivers. He rescues. He redeems. The coming of Christ, it means that change is coming. It has come. It will come more fully someday. Because we really do have problems on this side of, of heaven. But we have a God who really cares. Who gets involved. Scotty Smith writes, Little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes. Really? I'm glad Jesus did cry as a baby. He was fully human, fully baby. His tears are dear. He wept for Lazarus over Jerusalem for us as our substitute. Jesus deeply cares for us and for you. He knows our sinful condition. He cares about our sinful condition. He came to provide for us in our sinful condition. How so? How does He solve our problem? Well, think about it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Beth is house. We translated the Hebrew word into the house. Like, uh, I think even here in Birmingham, there's a temple, Bethel, a Jewish synagogue, Temple Bethel, house of El, God, house of God, temple, house of God. So Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay, so that's where Jesus was born, house of bread. The Bible says then that Mary wrapped him in cloths and, and placed him in a manger. A manger, of course, was this wooden food trough that you put food in for animals. And so there was the Lord Jesus wrapped in cloths. So His first breath here on earth, He's identified as food for the world. From His first breaths, we, breaths, we see here that He was sent to satisfy the hunger of our, our sin-shattered lives. And later in his life, he would, of course, once again lie down on wood. And this time it would be on the beams of the cross and die and then be wrapped in cloths again and laid to rest, only to rise again, that we might have life. So our call today is to live lives in humility and faith, Humility to admit that we have problems, that our sinfulness is the main problem we have. And then faith to ask for help. You know, names are a big deal. Names reveal a lot about your relationship with the person. Um, if you run into somebody who calls me Mike, 
that means they know me from high school or college. And, and there's a few of those. I know Jim, Jim Hamill from college. He calls me Mike. And that's okay. Most of y'all call me Michael because you know me now. You, there's only one person who calls me Honey. <laughs> I guess every now and then the waitress at Waffle House might call me Honey. But <laughs> names are a big deal. And they reveal a lot about your relationship with the one you're referring. So what do you call God? Do you call Him non-existent? Do you call Him jerk? Do you call Him just the man upstairs? Or do you call Him wonderful? Do you call Him counselor? Do you call Him mighty God? Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I pray that you would know Him as wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that indeed this Advent season, this Christmas day, each of us here would in new and fresh ways know You as our wonderful God, Counselor God, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response is number 207. Good Christian men, rejoice. Let's stand together and sing. And now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen.
the Lord has used this time today to stimulate your thinking, I'd love a chance to get to know you a little bit better and have some conversation. Please feel free to reach out to me in whatever way is comfortable for you. You can come by the office or I'll buy you lunch or just a cup of coffee. Of course, you can always come by on Sunday mornings and we can meet face to face. Our new service time is 9.30 a.m.